Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. The following is a Hoopball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. I would venture to say that this is a busy Friday. Is that safe? There are large-scale protests happening across the country. And again... I will just take this brief moment to let everybody know I'm not going to dig into the details on this podcast, but I would strongly recommend you guys pick up a newspaper or check out some of what's going on in your country if you're here in the States or in the States if you're not here in this country. It's a uh, pretty tumultuous time. And as per usual, you guys can pretty much guess where I stand in all this stuff, but this is not, uh, not the topic of today's podcast. There are big things going on in the NBA as well. And I know, and you know, I feel like I have to do this preface, even though maybe we don't have to at this point. If this was like, if this was a new podcast, like if I had just started this show last month, I probably would need to do this preface that I'm about to do. But I mean, we're four years into this, eh, three and change years into this thing at this point. You guys know what I stand for. You guys know I understand, you know, what's important on this planet. And I, I understand that fantasy sports are not important in the grand scheme of things. But that's what this show is about. It's what I choose to do a show about. It's what I have some measure of expertise in. Largely just because I spend way too much time studying numbers, players, and basketball. And I also hope that it provides some of you with just a brief mental respite from some of the other stuff going on. Whatever it might be. So the preface is, of course... Exactly that. I know there are more important things going on in the world right now. Multiple more important things going on in the world right now. Big time stories. Seismic shifting type stuff. Not just COVID anymore. But it's our job to watch what's going on with the NBA. So that's what we're going to talk about. With, again, the preface of, I realize it's not the most important thing. But guess what? It's a little bit important to me, and it's a little bit important to any of you guys listening to. So that makes it important to someone. Perspective only goes so far. So, what are we talking about on today's show? One, this is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoopball presentation. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, everybody. I'm your host, Dan Bespris. I really overpronounced the S's. Technically, I guess that's right. I am Dan Bespris. They're soft S's. But I don't mind if you call me Bespris. That's fine. I've been called a lot of things. My wife took my last name. She's an idiot. <laughs> she, she's a doctor. So that might be an incorrect statement. But she did get called Dr. Bieber. And that's the funniest damn thing ever. You can call me whatever you want. What's the old expression? Just don't call me late for dinner. I'm at Dan Bespris on Twitter, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hoopball, of course, is at hoop-ball.com, at hoopballfantasy, at hoopballtweets. And as per usual, good stuff continuing to rumble along over at Hoopball headquarters. Hoopball HQ, HBHQ. Latest fantasy snapshot of the Los Angeles Lakers. We got some stories brewing about the Wizards resuming voluntary workouts, Celtics opening their practice facility, Knicks opening their practice facility. All these things are little and decent positive steps towards a resumption of the NBA season. But the big news of the day, which is what we're going to open with, technically, on today's podcast, is that the NBA had a Board of Governors call with Commissioner Adam Silver today, Friday, May the 29th, and a target date has been set for the resumption, the return 
of the MAC. The NBA season expected to be back July 31st. I have mixed feelings about this news, which I will convey to you momentarily. Also on today's show, we are going to be embarking upon a mini hiatus from our post-mortem tour across the NBA. And I know you're like, Dan, come on, for goodness sake, you only have three teams left. Let's just get this damn thing done. But honestly, I don't like doing a post-mortem show on Fridays because I'd rather have something a little bit more fun, a little bit more evergreen to hang out with you guys over the weekend. You know, a show that sits up there Friday, Saturday, and and Sunday. It's kind of a three-day pod. Should be something that has a little bit more teeth to it. So what I've done is I've compiled a list of seven of the best picks in fantasy this year. I think they are the seven best picks in all of fantasy. I compiled a list of five honorable mentions for the best picks in fantasy and nine of the best pickups in fantasy this year. So what we're going to do is because news continues to break on seemingly a a daily basis with respect to when the NBA season is coming back and how this season might come back, we're going to about to dive into all that stuff. I thought, look, that those stories by themselves usually take us about 10 to 12 to 15 minutes on the podcast. That's not enough for a show. The postmortems tend to take about 35 to 40 minutes apiece. You could pair up a big news story with a post-mortem, which now is seeming more like a mid-mortem. Although, really, let's be honest, the regular season seems like it's pretty much done for fantasy purposes. But that's going to give you a pod that's like 50 minutes long. And that's fine. During the regular season, you know, most of these podcasts were in that 45 to 60-minute range. When nothing's going on right now, I honestly don't think you guys want a 60-minute podcast that may or may not be relevant when basketball actually starts up again. We're just pouring through notes right now. That's what we're doing. We're like we're studying for the the fantasy final the final exam and we have no idea when it's going to be. So we just keep studying our notes over and over again and looking for clues and trying to figure out what question the professor's going to ask. So we're going to pair up news stories with some of these features. These are feature pieces on the podcast now, which are and I think we can call them affectionately the best moves in fantasy. 2019-2020 edition, meaning the best draft picks and the best pickups. 12 and 10. I guess it came down to 12 and 10. But let's start with the news of the day, and it was it was significant. July 31st. Why do I have mixed feelings about this? Honest to goodness, it's almost not fair for me to have mixed feelings about July the 31st. Because if one month ago, when everything looked like it was up in flames, I mean, think about it. The end of April, we were hearing, you know, there might be some cities that try to do a couple of things in May. A few of the places that were pretty aggressive with getting their their various businesses open again and a little bit more freewheeling with the potential health ramifications... We're just getting little inklings of of that type of stuff. The more cautious states, nothing was happening. I mean, at that point, they were like, oh, well, something might happen in the next two weeks or something like that. And if you go back like a month and a half to mid-April, things were still in. We're still shutting down. That was a month into the NBA being shut down, and some states were still like, should we close some stuff? So if at that point, you were like, hey, what's up, Dan? It's April 25th. Uh, what if we told you we were going to take a three-month break on top of the one month we've already been closed? So uh, we're going to take a four-month break, and then you're going to get basketball back. I probably would have been like, sweet, start the timer. But today, today, to hear July 31st, I kind of felt a little bit sad because a lot of these other discussions, and again, they were unsubstantiated, which is why even when we talked about them middle, late last week, There was that report out of Indiana that seemed timeline-wise to make some sense. But it wasn't, again, no no one had substantiated the rumor that we were working off of. But just doing the math ourselves, even, it was like, okay, well, if we're expecting to get a report on what the NBA is going to do 
next week. It was always supposed to be between June 1st and June 15th, and then league uh, league owners and GMs started saying, well, probably the week of June 1st. If we were, If we even looked at the middle of next week, which would be June 3rd, that teams are like, okay, report back and let's quarantine. You figure everybody is back uh, by June 8th in whatever city they're supposed to quarantine. And maybe they just go straight to Orlando. Maybe some players quarantine in their home city. That takes us to June 21st, where hopefully teams have done either their, they can do their training camp in their home city, or they could, I guess, do it in Orlando. It seems like they should probably try to do it wherever everybody's going to be playing because then you don't have to re-quarantine. But, so let's say everybody then regroups. Maybe they do a little bit of stuff in their own place. The idea that they should have to quarantine twice is a waste of two weeks. And you lose whatever kind of ramp-up, whatever ramp-up you were getting from these guys. They, they Their bodies cool back down again. So let's say on June 22nd, training camp starts. One, two, three weeks would take you to July the 13th. And then everybody thought, all right, well, you know, a couple, three, four, five days after that, you could start this weird regular season. So I was looking at somewhere around July 15th, maybe between the 15th and the 20th. If no one had ever given us the indication that that was a possibility, July 31st is a target date. I think we all would have been pretty stoked. Of course, if someone had said to us immediately, hey, we're going to try to come back on July 31st, I think we all would have known immediately, oh, you guys aren't going to play 15 regular season games. That's off the table. So that's the reason I'm a little bit sad to hear July 31st, because all of a sudden now it feels like I'm going to be waiting two weeks longer than I thought I would. But at the same time, I have to put this all in perspective again. The perspective on this is, hey, all this guessing we've been doing the last two weeks since we started getting word of positive momentum, since we started hearing that teams were optimistic about a comeback, this is great news. This is like, look, we are, this is a target. We have this, we have a plan that's coming together on safety issues, and now we just have to figure out some of the other formulas. This is the first time they've ever given us this kind of indicator. And Lord knows they've given themselves plenty of wiggle room. That's still two months to get everything into place, and it's still a target date. It's by no means an official relaunch date. But damn it, it's a big, it's a big something. It is not nothing. All these little things we've been looking at, all these little steps towards actually getting to watch basketball again, and now the Board of Governors and Adam Silver have come together to say, look, this is what we're trying to get done. This is what we're working for. The other part of the news that came out today, Friday, is that not only did the league and the Board of Governors discuss when they'd like to return, they discussed four scenarios by which the NBA could return. And those four scenarios are based roughly on how many teams they want to bring into the bubble. By all accounts, the least likely of those four scenarios is bringing all 30 teams back. That plan, by the way, this was Shams, Woj, Ramona Shelburne. You guys know the nothing. I Like, I'm not doing the digging on this. I am reporting to you on things that I have been seeing put out by the people that actually do the digging. But we're going to break it down because we have a podcast and most of you guys probably read their 200-character tweet. If the league were to bring 30 teams back, which again feels like the least likely of the four scenarios, they would be shooting for a 72-game regular season. So now you're talking about anywhere from roughly five to nine games for various teams in the NBA, which, by the way, is a big deal if they decided to go that route because we talked about it extensively as recently as on yesterday's podcast Some of these teams in the Western Conference that are three and a half games back of the Grizzlies only would have had, if they were playing 70 games, some of those teams would have only had four games to try to make it up. The Blazers are at 66 games played right now. Spurs are at 63. Kings, 64. Pels, 64. Grizzlies, 65. 
Those teams didn't have much of a chance to catch the Grizzlies if they're working with four, five, or six games, and they're basically four games back. The three and a half games back, they haven't played the same number of games. You get it. If all of a sudden now, and we'll just take the Blazers since they have the highest total, if they're now playing six games, and the Pels are playing eight, and the Kings are playing eight, and the Grizzlies are playing seven, it's still unlikely, but it's a whole heck of a lot more possible. It's more, not probable, but it's a little bit more possible with two extra games mixed in there. It is, and I don't know how the hell they would build the schedule for this. Like, how do you decide what five or nine games the teams are playing? Is it just the next five or nine in the schedule? Is it the last five or nine? Is it a completely rebuilt schedule? That's another reason I don't buy that that's really an option on the table. If you could pull it off in a way that teams find fair, which I, I just don't think you could, it makes a lot of sense for then going to a... You could probably just go with a 16-team playoff, although it sounds like they want a play-in tournament game or play-in tournament for the last couple of seeds in that one as well, just in case Zion doesn't make it, because let's be honest, the reports have all surfaced that that's what the NBA wants. He's their cash cow right now. In addition to LeBron James, Zion's the cash cow. It just doesn't seem... It seems unreasonable to bring teams like the Cavs the Pistons, the Hawks, the Knicks, the Wolves, the Warriors, you're bringing five, six, seven, eight teams back into the bubble. And if every team is bringing 35 people along, you're talking about multiple hundreds. You're talking about almost 300 people, probably, that don't need to be in the bubble. That just, it dramatically increases the safety issues without much increasing the reward. The risk-reward is, is crummy. Option, another option on the table is to go straight to the playoffs. You just bring the 16 teams back that are already in the playoffs. This one seems somewhat unlikely because a lot of teams want to get that next regional television contract money. We've heard over and over and over again that they want to hit that 70-game threshold somehow with some number of teams. Even though this actually probably makes the most sense just from a what's fair standpoint, if you're like, you know what? You weren't in the playoffs. I don't care if you were trying to make a run. The teams that made it, made it. At any point in the season, you want to be in the playoff picture because what if the season ends? That's just like why you want to get off to a fast start in fantasy. You don't want to be chasing. You just don't know what the end of the season might bring. But in addition to the TV revenue side of the equation on this one, we've also heard that teams and players want regular season games as tune-ups on top of kind of a weird training camp. They want games that matter a little bit. They want to play against other teams that would like to beat them. Teams want to play against other teams that care, even if you're a team like, say, the Lakers, who probably doesn't care at this point. They have a big enough lead that they're likely not dropping out of the one spot in the West. Milwaukee, same story in the East. Those teams, I'm sure, would love to play against a team like, say, Utah. They're fighting for home court in the playoffs. You want to play against teams that are going to give you at least a B-level effort. Because training camp, you're getting a D-minus level effort. That doesn't really get you into playoff game shape. There needs to be this ramp-up. In addition to just getting the body loose... They want to have some competition. If a playoff game is 100% on your throttle, it's hard to go from zero right now to training camp, which is like you're rolling at about 30%, and then straight up to playoff. You want to have some regular season games in there, maybe a few that you're not trying that hard where you're going at about 60%, and then maybe a few where you really are trying. You're not going playoff trying but you're rolling at like 75-80%, and you ramp up, and that's good for their bodies and their minds. So I don't think the 16-teamer is happening either. It seems more and more likely that the NBA is going to get creative with one of the other two ways we're hearing that this season may recommence. Shams tweeting that those other two opportunities are a 20-team return to play or a 22-team return to play. 
Ramona Shelburne tweeting that teams that are within six games of a playoff spot might be it might be invited back, which I believe is just Washington in the East, Portland, New Orleans, Sacramento, San Antonio, and Phoenix out West. That would be the 22-team scenario. Five teams in the Western Conference, one team in the Eastern Conference. Ramona tweets, why six games? This is a quote, by the way. Because historically, teams haven't been able to come back from more than five games with this number of games remaining on the schedule. Whatever this many is. I don't know what that what we're talking about. Are we talking about a 72-game season at that point? Six games out, you actually play out the rest of the regular season? That's stupid, because you have to make a brand new schedule among only the teams that are fighting for it? No. That's, a, that's horrible. In fact, it's terrible for uh, Orlando, Brooklyn, and Memphis, the teams that are most likely to fall out in that situation, because all of a sudden now... They're only playing against good teams and teams that are trying to chase them down. Although I guess Memphis supposedly had a harder schedule down the stretch than some of the teams chasing them anyway. But I don't I don't know that I like this method either. Anyway, here's what we're looking at here. If they bring 20 teams along, Sham's noting that that would be sort of a group or slash stage play, which I think somewhat parallels the Mark Cuban method. You take groups... And then teams come out of those groups. I don't like, I don't like the soccer style group play. If they go stages, maybe that makes a little bit more sense, so that the teams with the highest seed really do get a big advantage. Twenty-two teams. There would be games to determine the seeding, and then a play-in tournament for the final couple spots. I got to give the NBA credit. They could have just gone the NHL route and said, you know what? This is what we're doing. Figure it out. But they're really trying hard to come up with something that appeases as many as possible. Here's the problem with this method, though, what we're seeing in the NBA right now. Problem is you're not going to please everybody. You never can. It's an old expression. Expression as old as time. You can't please everyone all the time. Someone's going to be annoyed with whatever you pick. Someone's going to be annoyed. Some team that didn't want to come back is going to have to come back, or some team that wanted to play isn't going to be allowed to play, or somebody that's in the playoffs is going to mess with their seeding, and they're going to be upset, and everybody's going to be writing stupid articles after the fact about how there's an asterisk around this and so on and so forth. The one thing I think we should all remember, regardless of what the NBA decides as they come back and play these ball games, whether it is in G July, indeed July 31st or something near there, is... The teams at the bottom of the playoffs don't win the championship. It just doesn't happen. Since the NBA went to a best of seven in every playoff series, the teams that win the championship come from the top few seeds. It's not always the team with the best record in the NBA, but damn it, it's not usually that far off. Last season, Toronto had the second best record in the NBA. They were the two seed in the Eastern Conference. The Cavaliers, LeBron's exit. They were a four seed. The Warriors were a two seed when they're going to the finals. Warriors were the one seed the year before that. I mean, it's not, there aren't big surprises. There just aren't. Seven seeds don't make the finals. Remember when the, the We Believe Warriors won one round? It was awesome. It was so cool. And then Baron Davis dunked on Andre Kirilenko, but the thing I think everybody forgets, they lost that series. 2006-2007, the We Believe Warriors were 42-40. and 40. They beat the Mavs, who were 67-15. and 15. It was great. And then they played the Utah Jazz, had a big dunk, and got clobbered in that series. Those low seeds don't win the championship. So we can go back and forth about this all we want. I say, let more teams in. 
because they're not going to win the championship and we just get to see more playoff games. Go with the Mark Cuban method. Go with 22 teams and try to figure out maybe you take the bottom eight and they play for the final two playoff spots. Top 14 are locked in, bottom eight, duke it out in a 22-game thing. Take 20 teams and do it Mark Cuban style where you take the bottom four and then those two play the previous bottom two. I don't care, man. Make it best of one or best of three. Do whatever the hell you want at this point. If your league starts effectively August 1st, because that's what we're talking about. You can call it July 31st, but you know it's easier to just think of it as the start of August. Uh, the regular season at this point then would take you two weeks into August. The playoffs would start by probably about August 17th or 18th. And I'm thinking the NBA would like to have those over by probably the first week of October. Maybe like October 9th. You probably have about two months off and then next season would start right around Christmas. Playoffs end, I don't know, say October 8th. You probably have the draft the next Tuesday or Wednesday. You probably have free agency the Monday after that. Maybe that's October 19th. Uh, And then we're off and running. Fantasy draft time. Beginning of December. Probably going to be drafting fantasy the beginning of December. It's going to be crazy, but that's where we're sitting right now. So big news today out of the NBA. It sounds like we can almost start our countdown clock. And the cool thing about the countdown clock is that there are little things that happen along the way. We are going to have, if you have a local TV network that carries your team's NBA games that you root for, you're probably going to see video footage of some of this stuff. Although I don't know how the social distancing works on that. Set up a camera in the place. Maybe you get some socially distanced interviews. We're going to have content soon, I think. Maybe at the end of the players quarantining inside of their new bubble. Oh, man. We're almost there, guys. We're almost there. I have one final thought on this topic. Get it together, baseball. Good grief. Everybody else is figuring it out, and baseball's pooping down their leg. All right. I rolled a three-sided die among the three topics that I had outlined in the best moves of the year series. Is actually, I, I actually flipped a coin because you guys don't care about the honorable mentions. I think those will probably get lumped into something else. And I wanted to go with the best draft picks of the year. I'm going to list them off somewhat quickly here I, I just just so you guys know kind of what we're working with and, th- and there's probably a couple of names mixed in that maybe I didn't throw in that you guys would and the criteria is not hard and fast I thought these were the guys that were drafted I, I, I'd be I'd venture to say you probably find these guys on a lot of winning teams and I'm actually, as I'm doing the podcast right now, I'm going to move one of these guys from the best draft picks into the honorable mention category. So it actually becomes six and six in those instead of seven and five. The best draft picks of the year. Guys that were picked way too low and then had a massive, massive impact on fantasy teams for a couple of different reasons. And the list is, and this is not in any particular, the the order that this is in is how the guys ended up ranked this year. It's not necessarily in the order of which one is the best draft pick or which one is the worst. But the names are Hassan Whiteside, Jason Tatum, Chris Paul, Kyle Lowry, Freddie Van Vliet, and Brandon Ingram. I believe those are your six best draft picks in fantasy this year. And if you're yelling at me that I left the name off, it's possible they're on my honorable mentions list. It's also possible they're not. But our task on today's show that's going to take us through the weekend is to determine how these players ended up as the best picks in fantasy and what we can learn from their stories that we can then take forward. And we're going to go name by name on this. Because we've now, and the reason I felt like I could do it this today is because we've actually covered all of the teams that these players are on. 
that these play for on our post-mortem series. In fact, I think I'm almost positive, actually, that everyone on all of my lists we've covered. I don't think there's a single player in my best moves of the year list from the three remaining post-mortem teams, which is Brooklyn, New York, and who the hell am I forgetting? <laughs> who the hell did I hit? Um, wow, why is this happening to my brain? The 76ers. Sure. Sorry, Philadelphia. Yeah, I don't think Brooklyn, New York, or Philly had any of the best moves, any of the best draft picks or free agent pickups of the year. So we were able to do this little foray into this side discussion right now because we've profiled all of these players. Hassan Whiteside finished the year as number eight player in fantasy. And we're going to be using the Basketball Monster ranking sheet because I love the way they break it down by value, meaning what is this player's value to an individual roster slot when compared to basically someone who provides you league average value, which as we've discussed before, our guys ranked in that 65 to 70 range. And what are, sort of what are they? What's, the, what's their value from a statistical standpoint? Hassan Whiteside, as the number eight guy, I mean, this is a really big deal, was drafted Roughly in the 70s, his ADP was 76.2 this year. He finished the season at 16.3 points, 14.2 rebounds, an assist, just under half a steal, 3.1 blocks per game, 61.8% shooting from the field, 68 at the free throw line, and 1.9 turnovers. How did he get to this point? And why? Because it's also important to compare this to what we were thinking going into the season, why was this a guy that we didn't end up with all that often? I mean, this is one of the best picks, if not the best pick in fantasy, and I didn't have any Hassan Whitesides on my teams. How did this happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happened. First of all, I should point out that he went right around 80 in my most competitive league, so the ADP was actually fairly accurate for Whiteside. He wasn't terribly far off from where most of the mocks had him going and most of the previous drafts had him going and sort of the, the overall massive average of things. The main reason that we didn't end up with a bunch of Hassan Whiteside players, Hassan Whitesides on our team, is that last season he shot 45% at the free throw line on three and a half free throws per game. He was the worst in the league. You had almost no prayer of being even in the middle of free throw shooting in your league with a guy posting that type of number. And the beauty of the fact that, you know, websites store data forever is you can go back to last year and you can see the impact that his free throw shooting had on his numbers overall. It was uh, not good. Who were some of the worst free throw shooters in the NBA last year? I mean, the, the, the usual fare. Right? Nothing's surprising anyone. Son Whiteside was ranked 96th last year, and his free throw shooting placed him down with Steven Adams, who was at 50% on slightly greater number of free throws. Ben Simmons, who was at 60% on way more free throws last year. Andre Drummond was down in that grouping. Rudy Gobert was down in that grouping. But Hassan Whiteside was the worst. He carried the torch all by himself. He had the mantle of the single worst impact free throw shooter in the NBA last year. And that is a hard pill for me to swallow. You guys know how much I care about the percentages because I'm a big-time Roto guy. But overlooking the fact that he had actually been trending up in that department prior to last season's mental breakdown with Miami. My thought there was... I am generally concerned, and genuinely concerned, I am both of those things, that Hassan Whiteside had developed the yips at the free throw line. Moving teams, whatever, that he was just now a horrible free throw shooter. And if that continued this year, he took more free throws this season than last year, 
his value would have plummeted. His other stuff was very good. His scoring was up. His minutes were up. His shooting percentage was up. His rebounding was up. Steals were actually down, but who cares? That wasn't really what you were drafting him for anyway. And then blocks were, uh, I mean, about what you'd expect. They were up a little bit on the on per 36s. But he just got playing time. I mean, we're talking about comparing this most recent Hassan Whiteside to Miami 2016-2017 when he played 32 and a half minutes a game for the Heat and averaged 17 and 14. And now with the Blazers, 31 minutes, and he averaged 16 and 14. He averaged 3.7 blocks per game that year. That was a first-round level. Sorry, 2.1 blocks per game that year. It was 3.7 the previous year. So his blocks actually went back up compared to that season. A little bit of an outlier. When he played a ton of minutes, that was a number that was coming down a little bit. But oh, folks, one thing we always forget. Not just that he was able to get out of Miami from a place that things had soured a little bit. But that it was a contract year. The magic of the contract year. And perhaps that was the greatest piece of the puzzle we overlooked. We also thought Zach Collins was going to play this season and that he and Whiteside would likely end up splitting the minutes at center. And so you could put that in the, okay, well, we didn't see that guy missing the entire season portion of the proceedings happening. If Zach Collins is healthy, I know you guys like, he was going to play power forward. Malarkey. (laughs) Baloney. These two dudes were not going to play side-by-side all season long. That was going to be a horrible experiment. And even if they were on the floor together for some stretches, ultimately Zach Collins was going to be playing center and taking minutes away from Whiteside. And those 31 minutes a game for Hassan was probably going to be more like 26 or 27. So yes, it was going to be better than last year in Miami, but 31 minutes was a far cry from the likely end point if that team was healthy. Is someone going to sign Hassan Whiteside and give him 30 minutes a game next year? I doubt it. But what did we miss? That's what's important. What did we miss? Why didn't we have more Hassan Whiteside? Well, with his ADP at 76, if his free throw shooting was as awful as usual and he was going to be playing 27 minutes a game, 76 was probably about where he was going to end up. Again, we mentioned last year he was 96 in 23 minutes a game. You throw another 15% on top of that it moves him into probably more of a top 75 valuation. What we didn't see was another five minutes on top of that, largely related to the Zach Collins injury, and a power boost in his block rate. Both of those things happened. And his free throw shooting came back. What are my regrets, or our regrets, when it comes to Hassan Whiteside? I think the regret here has to be What I didn't do, and it's probably because I had a lot of Hassan Whiteside last year on fantasy teams, and so I lived through that 45% free throw shooting all damn season long, is that was the absolute worst case scenario. Hassan Whiteside in Portland playing about 26, I would say, minutes per game at a terrible foul shooting clip was probably on his way to averaging about 14 and 12 on probably 55 to 60% shooting around two blocks a game with a question mark in the free throw department. If it was horrible, he was probably going to be around number 80-85. And if it wasn't horrible, that's top 50. And that, I think, is where we overlooked Hassan Whiteside. Or I should say I. I said we as more of a royal we. I overlooked Hassan Whiteside. Because at 76.2, his ADP, I thought, all right, well, if his free throw shooting is horrible, you know, what if he's, that puts him probably at about 85 and he underperforms this ADP. But the upside was always really good. If his free throw shooting wasn't bad, he was going to be somewhere between 75 and 40. So then you say, okay, well, what's the range there? Well, it's like 40 to 85. Most of that range is on the good side of that 76 ADP. And then the only other big man on the team went down. His free throw shooting did come back. His block rate went up. His field goal percent went up. And suddenly, top 40 added five minutes per game. Even if nothing else, 
improves. That moves him from top 40 to probably top 25 or top 30. And then everything else got better, and he jumped from top 25 to top 10. Yeah. My greatest regret is not putting my personal bias aside on Hassan Whiteside and looking at him and saying, look, there's probably a 75% chance he does beat this ADP. And I was way too focused on the 25% chance that he doesn't because of how he would have not beaten that ADP. If his free throw shooting was terrible, it would have blown up my strategy in almost every league. But you have to be willing to take that chance. Jason Tatum, the next name on the list. He finished number 12. His ADP was 38.5. And you're like, Dan, that's only a 26-point jump. That's a big one. Guys in the 38 range in fantasy this year, Rob Covington, Kemba, DeMar DeRozan, guys near Jason Tatum this year, LeBron James, Bradley Beal, Jimmy Butler, Chris Paul. You think the caliber of player is a little bit better there? This is a guy you probably got at the end of the third round or the beginning of the fourth round, and he ended up playing like a first rounder. That's a colossal, colossal jump. Why didn't we have more Jason Tatums on our fantasy teams? Well, in reality, in reality, we could have. It wasn't like Hassan Whiteside, where I was consciously thinking, I don't think I really want this guy at 76.2. With Tatum, I did want him around 40. But almost every time a pick got to me near 40, Chris Paul was still on the board. And I just felt more confident in Chris Paul than I did in Jason Tatum. And I don't regret that at all. Even though Tatum finished just ahead of Chris Paul in per-game ranking. Actually, Paul was slightly ahead of him in totals, more games played to this point. I don't regret that decision at all, and Chris Paul is actually the next name on the list, so we can probably analyze those two guys together. Because those where Hassan Whiteside was one that we whiffed badly, Tatum and Paul were ones that we got right. I thought Jason Tatum was a really good post-hype selection near 40. I thought he would probably finish near 25 or 30. I didn't think number 12, but a win's a win. He ended up ratcheting his usage higher than I could have ever expected. I thought for sure with Kyrie Irving gone, he had an opportunity to kind of step into like a 1A or a 1B type thing. But he really did just become the solo number one on this team. It really wasn't 1A, 1B. It was Jason Tatum number one. And then it was like Kemba, Jalen Brown, Gordon Hayward, everybody else, 2A, 2B, 2C, etc. So he actually took one additional aggression step forward that we didn't even see coming. But this was a relatively easy one to predict a win on. He didn't improve as much as people wanted him to last year, so the shine came off. In addition to the shine coming off, which tends to depress fantasy value a little, or uh, perceived value a little bit, he had the main guy in front of him, the guy that was marginalizing his ability the guy that kind of took over the identity of the team and made everybody sourpuss, that guy left the team. Sorry, Kyrie Irving, but that's kind of what you did in Boston. For better or worse, everyone else got marginalized. So this was a double whammy and a pretty easy one to see. Jason Tatum was going to have a bigger role this year. Even if he didn't get better, he was going to have so much opportunity that all of that was going to roll into a better season. And we already knew he had good numbers in both steals and blocks from last year. Field goal percent was fine. Free throw percent was very good. Rebounding was pretty good. Any step forward was going to be nice. But just the usage alone was going to be enough to get him to beat his ADP. Because Jason Tatum last year, in basically what ended up as a worst-case scenario... He was still inside the top 60. He only took 13 shots per game last season. He averaged 16 points and 6 rebounds. There was almost nowhere to go but up for this dude. 13 shots a game? You knew that wasn't going to hold. The usage was going to be spiking. And so drafting him in the, around 40, there was, as we mentioned, I thought about a round of value in front of him. Well, he turned that into two. Chris Paul is a story we've covered time and again, so we're going to go through him somewhat quickly here. This is a guy that everybody had written off because of age, when in our estimation on this podcast, 
we felt it was almost exclusively because of his situation in Houston. He had the worst fantasy season that he's had in a decade, and he was still number 21 on a per-game basis last year because his fantasy stat set is so easy to maintain value in nine category leagues in particular. He is hyper-efficient, high steals, high assists, low turnover, great free-throw percent, point guard. Everything, I mean, like, look at his entire career. This guy's been a first-round pick basically his entire career in fantasy sports, and then he went and played alongside James Harden, and everything came apart. Surprise, surprise. Houston said, you can't take elbow jumpers anymore. Get to the rim or take a three-pointer? That's not his game. He shot 42% trying to take shots that he wasn't comfortable taking. He went to Oklahoma City, shot 49% this year. And after actually kind of a slow start where he was he was like a top 50 guy for a few weeks, he was even better than that after the first month of the season. Chris Paul was pretty consistently inside the top 15, inside the top 10 for long stretches this year. Last 25 games of the season, he shot 52%. 52% from the field, 90 at the free throw line. He was 20.7 assists over that stretch. He was great. That was an easy one. I'll tell you why that was an easy one. Because I know you're like, Dan, what about injuries? Well, I didn't care because I was so confident he was going to be putting up near first-round value on a per-game basis that the fact that we were able to draft him at around 36, the end of the third round, all he needed to do was play about 60-some-odd games to beat that value on a totals basis. Anything over about 62 games was just going to be gravy this year, and he broke that with 15, 17 games to go. Easy peasy. Kyle Lowry is the next name on my list, largely because I just could not believe that he was the forgotten man. He generally went a little bit higher than his ADP, and I don't know if that's because of our podcasts or what, but his ADP was 56. Teams had completely given up on Kyle Lowry, and he finished at number 19 this year on a per-game basis. Yes, he did miss a dozen games, but 20 points, almost eight assists, one and a half steals, three three-pointers, high-volume, good foul shooter, and the only place he hurt you really was field goal percent. That one was another really easy one. He and Chris Paul were both on my old man squad list among early round draft picks. This was like the, why are these guys going here group? We knew what Chris Paul can do. We knew what Kyle Lowry was capable of with no Kawhi Leonard in town. That goes back to being completely his team this year. That was a cakewalk. Kyle Lowry's been a near first round pick at times. Remember back when he was playing with DeMar DeRozan? He wasn't a 50 some odd guy. He wasn't an afterthought. This is his team. So those ones are pretty easy. I do want to spend a tiny bit more time on the last two guys here. And we'll start with Brandon Ingram, and then we'll finish with Freddie Van Fleet. Brandon Ingram, who we basically dedicated half of that New Orleans Pelican breakdown to, had a stellar fantasy season. He finished at number 29, 24 points, 6 boards, 4 assists, a steal, 0.7 blocks, 2.5 three-pointers, 47% from the field, 86% high-volume free-throw shooting. I don't feel bad at all about not getting this pick right. Right? I don't feel bad about that. Because every indicator was that Brandon Ingram was not going to have a game that translated well to fantasy. He had a good field goal percent. He scored the basketball well with the Lakers. And I guess for a lanky small forward... He passed the ball relatively well. Three categories, however, doth not a fantasy player make. And as we always do when handicapping these guys, the story with Ingram was, all right, look, he's going to have to fix defensive stats, one or the other or both. He's going to have to fix his free throw shooting, and he's going to have to fix three-pointers or some weird combination of those, or otherwise he's going to be stuck in that 125 to 175 range. He was going to be like new Andrew Wiggins, a guy who had a couple of categories he was good at, but way too many he was bad at. And then out of the, out, completely out of the blue, in his fourth year in the NBA, his steal rate jumps, doubled season over season. His steal rate doubled from last year to this year. 
His assist rate stayed relatively constant, but he saw the basketball more. His rebounding rate went up. He went from hitting half a three-pointer a game on 33% to two and a half three-pointers a game on 39%. And, and this is the one that really blew me away, his first three seasons in the NBA shot 62, 68, and 67% at the free throw line. And then this year jumped from 67.5% to 86. High volume. I mean, this was not a limited sample size kind of thing. There was almost no way that anyone could have predicted he would fix steals, free throw percent, and three-pointers all in the same offseason. That never happens. And I know it sounds like an excuse, but it literally never happens. I can't think of another time that a guy fixed three sort of incongruent, like these are not congruent parts of his fantasy game. Fixing free throw percent doesn't mean you can suddenly hit a three-pointer. He actually had pretty good short mid-range type of game, so free throw percent you could have maybe argued, but then extending his range at the same time and three years of not really getting steals, and then all of a sudden, not that he was a big-time defensive guy, but he went to one steal instead of half. It's crazy. The only reason that maybe we should be kicking ourselves on the Brandon Ingram front, is where he was getting drafted. He was getting drafted after 100. The 100th player drafted in my competitive league was Dwayne Dedman. Guys that went after Dedman that ended up as functional fantasy players this year, Marcus Smart, Brandon Clark, Brandon Ingram, Boyan Bogdanovich, and then they get really few and far between. Who the hell else is even mixed? OGN and OB? You got to go like 20 picks down the list. So you're in an area there where you might as well take a shot on a guy that was expected to get pretty damn high usage. Still, even looking back, even with hindsight, I almost can't convince myself that taking Brandon Ingram at 110 makes more sense than taking Boyan Bogdanovich at 110. I was like, all right, well, with one of these guys, he's going to Utah to be a scorer. I know exactly what he's going to have to do. And if he maintains his percentages, he's going to be an easy top 100 guy. The other one is going to a team with like nine offensive options coming off of a blood clot and has giant holes in his fantasy game. I can't... I see some of the other guys drafted in that area, not ones that I drafted. I see some of the other guys drafted around there, like Kuzma went a couple picks later. Justice Winslow was mixed in there. R.J. Barrett was mixed in there. And, like, I could I could say, okay, you know, I could make the argument to take Brandon Ingram over some of those guys where there's also pretty giant question marks, but actually with less upside. But I can't, like, I couldn't convince myself to take him over Brandon Clark, who I knew was going to have really nice fantasy game and someone that Brew was talking to me about daily. I couldn't convince myself to take him over Marcus Smart. Or even if you go way down the list of some of the guys taken later, like, I don't know that I could have convinced myself to take him at this point over, hell, like a Spencer Dinwiddie I probably would have gone with first. I don't know. I guess Kyrie Irving was healthy. So what's the lesson here? The lesson is usage is value. And sometimes in that, zone, pick 100 to 110 and beyond, it's worth it to grab a guy you think might take a bunch of shots and just hope for the best. Because that was really a wing and a prayer. And you're taking a guy that just did not show fantasy game and hoping. And then it panned out. There's a little bit of luck, I think, involved in that one. Freddie Van Vliet, I'm a little bit more annoyed about. Of the, of the names that we're talking about here, the two, we got three of them right, Tatum, Paul, and Lowry. Brandon Ingram, we got wrong, but I don't care because I don't think we did anything wrong in that handicap. Hassan Whiteside, we got wrong, and I think it's because I let emotions get the best of me. And Freddie Van Vliet, honest to God, I don't know why we didn't get more of him. This one may be the most frustrating of all of them. Perhaps it's because he looked almost like a glorified Jalen Brunson last year. 
He could score, he could get assists, he could hit some threes, but he really didn't do anything else. And a terrible field goal percent. And then this year, Van Vliet. Last season, by the way, Freddie Van Vliet took 9.4 shots per game in 27 and a half minutes a game, averaged 11 points and 5 assists with a steal and almost two three-pointers. He was not really close to fantasy value. This year, in 36 minutes a game, usage is value. Usage is value. Playing time is value. He averaged 18 points, six and a half assists, and two steals per game. Much closer to his steal rate from two seasons back. Also 2.73 pointers. And a good enough volume, 84% at the free throw line. This is a guy that actually made a lot of sense to take where he was going. Van Vliet had an ADP of 87.6, which would be somewhere generally in the middle of the eighth round. And that's actually exactly where he went in this competitive draft. The guys that were taken near to Freddie Van Vliet, Ricky Rubio, who I think actually by all accounts was was an easier draft pick to make at that point. I don't regret that decision. Jeff Teague, Zach Collins went in there. Jeremy Lamb, not a bad one. Tomas Sadoransky, not a bad one. Mikhail Bridges, a little bit of a hope on that guy. He got going later in the year. Jared Allen, Victor Oladipo, Joe Ingles, Lou Williams, JaVale McGee. This one is a real hindsighter because we had no idea what Zach Collins was going to do. I didn't have any Zach Collins. Jeff Teague, we thought that he might kind of plod along in Minnesota. Sadoransky, he was going to a weird new place where it seemed like he was going to have a role, but we didn't really know for sure. The one guy in this group that we figured would probably have a nice role was, well, Ricky Rubio, but also Freddie Van Vliet. We knew his minutes were going to go up. The question was always, what would his fantasy game do? Would the scoring and assists go up and then everything else stayed about the same? What we didn't see coming was that he went from fairly average in defensive stats to one of the best. He was among the league leaders in steals per game. Fourth, actually, in the NBA in that department. Behind Ben Simmons, Chris Dunn, and Andre Drummond, of all people. And the lesson certainly to be learned there is understanding that if we were that high on Kyle Lowry, we kind of needed to be higher on Freddie Van Vliet because Kawhi Leonard's massive hunko of shots was suddenly up for grabs. So that one bugs me. We should have seen that one coming a little bit better. I don't know about top 25. I think we figured, you know, he was going at 87.6. There weren't that many other guys in that territory that I was all that hot to trot for. And there was, a for a Van Vliet, there was a pathway to more like a top 60 kind of season. And then the giant jump in steal rate. That That's really what leapt him another two or three rounds farther forward. So we didn't see that one coming, but still with Van Fleet, it was similar to Hassan Whiteside, where the bottom for him as a starter playing big minutes was more like top 100, and the top was more like top 50, plus an unforeseen leap forward actually jumped him another 25 spots. For Hassan Whiteside, same thing. The bottom was probably 85 and the upside was probably 50 or 40 before the block rate field goal percent went back up and he fixed and the free throw percent stayed. And then Brandon Ingram, I, I, I maintain, that's a guess. Folks, they got that right. We're basically guessing. So the best picks in fantasy, I think we had three out of six of them, more or less. Pretty pissed about what we did with Whiteside. Little confused about how we missed on Van Fleet, and not at all confused about Brandon Ingram. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. This is, by the way, why I didn't want to do these things alongside postmortems either. They would go long. Monday, we'll see if anything breaks over the weekend on the NBA. I'd be kind of surprised. Seems like that Board of Governors call was probably the big news for us to digest for the next couple of days. And we will resume with more. We have honorable mentions and we have free agent pickups yet to discuss in the best of the best of the best from the 2019-2020 fantasy season. Not just who they are, but why. How do we make sure that we get most of these guys going forward? I'm Dan Bespris. Again, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hit me up on Twitter at Dan Bespris. Follow HoopBall on Twitter at HoopBallFantasy. Bug me if you want to be part of our operation over here at HoopBall. You can do it on Twitter or by email writing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. And with that, we bid you adieu. We'll see you Monday, everybody.
This has been a Hoop Ball presentation.